Good morning and happy new year. John chapter 12 is our study this morning. Before we go to the Lord's table, we will hear the word of God. We are in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, verse 20 through 26. My title this morning is, To Live You Must Die. Many have made New Year's resolutions, and many will fail. Some will prevail in their New Year's resolutions. I was looking up what the top ones were, and some of them were interesting, and some of them were quite quite good as far as loving your neighbor and being kind to one another. I was pleasantly surprised at some of the top ones. Resolutions can be good. Um, having wanting to do better at something or being more diligent in one area or another. Usually resolutions have to do with exercise, diet, finances, or change of a bad habit. And these things can be beneficial. Some of us start a new Bible reading plan on January 1st, and we have the calendars uh, provided as well if, as one way to, to begin going through the Bible. And this, obviously, that is a good thing. One thing that cannot be a New Year's resolution is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. To follow Jesus Christ does not mean, as we know, to turn over a new leaf. In order to live, to serve, to follow Jesus Christ, indeed, you must die. And we'll see what that means from the text of Scripture this morning as the Greeks approached and wanted to speak to Jesus. Father, I ask once again for your help as I open up your word and speak your truth. God, that you would give ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we are in verse 20. And again, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the public ministry, is drawing to a close. And here is one of the final crowds right after the triumphal entry. Some of the Greeks, verse 20, were among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Who are these Greeks? And what were they doing at a Jewish feast? Well, these are real Greeks, not Jews that spoke Greek. Remember that uh, in, during this period of time, whether Jew or Gentile, you would, you would speak two, maybe three languages. The term refers to Gentiles. So if you hear me say Greek, I mean Gentile. If you hear me say Gentile, I mean Greek. The terms often at times are analogous, synonymous. These Gentiles came from a Greek-speaking place. Where exactly, we cannot be 100% sure. But they approached Philip, who was a Jew who had a Greek name. This suggests they may have been acquainted with Philip, from his hometown of Bethsaida in Galilee. These Greeks were God-fearers. 
We can assume this because they were going to worship at the feast. They weren't going just to hang out to see what this was all about. They were going to worship. They could have been full proselytes, converted to the Jewish religion at that time, but we cannot be sure. The Greeks, who were friendly to, who admired the religion, were permitted to the court of the Gentiles. However, they were not permitted to the court of the Jews, to the inner courts. If a Gentile was to go past that dividing wall, was to go in there, he would suffer the penalty of death. There was even a warning sign on that dividing wall. So when the Greeks approached Philip, it's unclear to us how much time has passed since the triumphal entry. There's three possibilities at least. There could be more, but three that uh, I came, came up with as I studied this. Well, it could have been a couple of days since the triumphal entry. In the meantime, Jesus, after the triumphal entry, cleansed the temple. And we read about that uh, in Mark chapter 11, verse 15 through 17. <clears throat> then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And this harkens back to Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. So the possibility could have been that the Greeks heard this, uh, heard of this. They may have been there when he cleansed the temple, when Jesus cleansed the temple. They may have been on the outskirts and they heard about this and they desired, therefore, to see Jesus. Perhaps this man could explain uh, to us what he meant. That maybe Gentiles aren't in inferior before the Lord. So that's one possibility. Secondly, these Greeks uh, witnessed the triumphal entry and were curious to know more and sought to talk to Jesus. That is another possibility. Or thirdly, they heard about the ministry of Jesus over time and they were now in Jerusalem. They sought out Philip in order to see Jesus. So first and foremost for us this morning, the desire of the disciples. The desire of the disciples. Verse 21. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These Greeks approached Philip. Philip seemed to have hesitated. He did not go right to Jesus. He went to Andrew, who was also a, a Jew with a Greek name. Andrew was one who had brought others to meet Jesus previously. We find this in the Gospel of John. I'll just read these for you. I'll reference them. 
uh, John chapter 1, verse 37 through 42. The, the two, two disciples heard him speak, heard Jesus speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he proposed, or excuse me, he purposed to go on to Galilee. And he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And you know the response of Nathanael. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then in John chapter 6, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? So there is, once again, Andrew with the lad. And here in verse 22 of our text this morning, Andrew took Philip to go tell Jesus. Philip and Andrew, both Jewish disciples, both had Greeks named. This could have Greek name. Names, this could have been the bridge for these Greeks to talk to Jesus. Why didn't the Greeks just go right to Jesus themselves? Well, perhaps the Greeks, along with Philip, were unsure how Jesus would receive these Gentiles. Or would he receive these Gentiles at all? The Gentiles knew that there was some division between the Jews and themselves. So instead of going right to Jesus, they looked for somewhat of a mediator. Ah, let's go to uh, uh, Philip. Philip may have been uncertain of what to do, perhaps of instructions Jesus gave before, such as in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 and 6. Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city, city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel, of the house of Israel. So we see what the first part of the mission was. Philip may have been uncertain, but Andrew knew what to do. Let's take this request to Jesus. Let's bring these people to Jesus. Andrew had done this before, and here he is once again. Jesus will have the answers. Let's take him to Jesus, the applications of that should be abounding to us. Now, we cannot be sure if there was a conversation between uh, the Greeks and Jesus. 
at that particular time. We do not know how far away they were when they made this request. Was Jesus right there? And they were just talking and Jesus was over in the crowd a little bit? Or was he somewhere else? What we do know is what they asked and how Jesus responded. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They were asking politely. Not merely to see him so they could get a look of what he, what he looked like. They wanted to talk to him. The word see suggests that they wanted to interview him. An interesting observation for us is the previous verses, specifically in verse 19, the Jews were rejecting Jesus. And the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The Jews primarily were rejecting Jesus, specifically the Jewish leaders. And here we see the Gentiles saying, I would like to see Jesus. Those within the whole world were going after him, the Greeks. Richard Phillips suggests... With typical irony, John reports the arrival of these Greeks to show that this was Jesus' very intention, to gain converts from the whole world. The coming of the Greeks signified that Jesus' victory was at hand. And as Jesus said in John 10, 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That, of course, being the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not forget, and go to Ephesians chapter 2. Let us not forget what Jesus did in his death with this dividing wall. What did Jesus do with this dividing wall of Jews and Gentiles? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and following tells us. Paul says, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, Gentiles, Greeks, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. 
by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. There is one way of salvation for the Jew and the Gentile. There are not two ways to God. There is one way. Make no mistake when you see newspaper exegetes saying this is going on in the Middle East, this is going on in the Middle East, there's going to be some special plan. There is not. There is one way. There is one gospel. There is one people of God. Jesus broke down that dividing wall. And he still, the gospel is preached to those who are far away from Christ now. Far away from Christ this morning. And those who are nearer to the kingdom this morning. Who say, well, I'm, I'm interested in these things. I'm just not there yet. I, I want to know these things. He is preaching peace to either one who will come to him this morning. No one is too far gone that cannot be converted. And no one is good enough to where they will go to heaven because no one is saved by works. So we see the desire of the disciples. Sir, I wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. And then we see, secondly, the departure that brings reconciliation. The departure that brings reconciliation. We're going back now to the Gospel of John. And we'll be flipping to the other uh, Gospels as well. Chapter 12. The departure. Notice the response of the Lord. We do not find that Jesus spoke directly to the, to the Greeks. We do not find that there was a conversation that took place there. We do find Jesus responding and saying something very significant. The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus does not respond specifically to their request. He does, however, address what it meant. Now that the Greeks were coming to him, now this signified that his hour had come. All throughout the Gospel of John, thus far, it has been in the future that his hour was to come. Chapter 2, verse 4, My hour has not yet come, says the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 30, So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in a treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. What hour is this that has come now as he says? His death. His death was at, at hand. His glorification was at hand. His burial, resurrection, ascension, ultimately his glorification was at hand. From now on, we see in the Gospel of John, Jesus referring to this hour as such. 
Chapter 12, verse 27. My soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it's for this purpose that I came for this hour. Chapter 13, verse 1. Knowing this hour had come. And in the prayer, Jesus in the garden praying to his father. Chapter 17, verse 1. He says, the hour has come. So we see the significance of such a change of the Greeks coming to Jesus. And he says, now, not the hour is coming, but the hour has come. This title, Son of Man, this expression used by Jesus over 80 times. This title, Son of Man, seems to be derived from Daniel's vision In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, not going to go there this morning. But the circumstances of what's taking place in chapter 12 and the response that Jesus has in this verse help us to see what is going on here. But we remember of what type of king the Jews were looking for. That was not the type of king that came in on a cult. Think about who they chose to free when Pilate had Jesus in custody and he had Barabbas in custody. A condemned criminal. Who would they choose? They said, give us Barabbas, this robber, this thief, this liar. Give us him. Crucify Jesus. Crucify the sinless Savior. Condemn him to death. Give us this robber. We should not be surprised. Men who are wicked will always choose darkness over light. Some in here this morning will walk out of this building unless you are converted to Christ and will choose darkness over light. Men without Christ love darkness and hate the light. And we see that all over the world as men and women who love darkness rule nations. And we wonder, wow, why could such things be happening to people? Well, look who is over them and look who they love and who they hate. And that being Christ. The desire of the disciples, sir, we wish to see Jesus. The departure that brings reconciliation. The departure of Christ. Thirdly, the death that brings life. Death that brings life. Jesus further explains, using an agricultural example, these uh, type of examples, these types of sayings that we see time and time again in the Scriptures. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We find in the Gospels the principles of crops, growing, fruitfulness, sowing, reaping. Paul uses a seed dying to explain the resurrection in chapter 
15 of 1 Corinthians. The grain of wheat introduces a paradox. Leon Morris says, The way of fruitfulness lies through death. Unless the wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will not bear. It is only through death that its potentiality for fruitfulness become actual. Life comes through death. Just as a seed is put into the dirt, it springs forth life. The Son of Man must endure suffering, death, be buried in the earth, and spring forth from the grave. Bearing much fruit, bringing many sons to glory. In order for sinful man to be able to have eternal life, a sinless Son of Man had to die. Christ came not to live a life of ease, not to wear an earthly crown. He came to carry a cross, to die a shameful, horrendous death, to be the one who was oppressed and afflicted, but did not open his mouth. And many will say, how wonderful, someone, someone died for me. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. This is wonderful news. For one hardly died for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But what about the application to that? What about the application to John chapter 12, verse 24? Well, verse 25 is the defined cost. So there's the death that brings life. Jesus gives one a statement there, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then the defined cost. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Key words here, we see the word life three times. Love and hate. Love and hate. He who loves his life, he who hates his life. There's an antithesis here. And then there's the life eternal. So there's two different meanings for the word life here in the Greek. Two meanings. The first one is life of the mind, life of the thinking, life of decisions, maybe even as far as the worldview. If one who loves his way of life loses it, and one who hates his way of life in this world will keep it to eternal life. There's the second definition. This word life combined with eternal is the divine life, the eternal life, what only a Christian possesses. Love and hate are polar opposites, are they not? It's important for us to remember that the Bible at times used graphic language to express something that is absolute. Jesus did this often. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. This speaking of radical amputation, of killing sin, of mortification of the flesh. But here in John 12, I agree with Thomas Boston when he says, No man can be a true disciple of Christ 
to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in this world. Again, Christ, a, no, one, no man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in this world. J.C. Ryle says, he that would be saved must be ready to give up life itself, if necessary, in order to obtain salvation. We see Jesus speak on this throughout the Gospels. Let's go first to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, and then we go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 10. Again, the defined cost. The defined cost. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Why could this be? How could this be? Because of one's stand for Jesus Christ. Not because one is obnoxious, not because one lives is, a, is weird, but because of one's stand for Jesus Christ, you will be hated even by your own family members who do not know Christ. He continues, verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Making idols out of family members. You've probably seen people who love their pets more than they love their own children, or at least it looks that way. But people who love, parents who love their children more than they love Jesus Christ. An idol that will keep you from following Jesus. Or loving parents to the point to where they say, you can't do this, but that's part of following Jesus Christ. And you say, okay, I'll listen to you. It's a question of allegiance. Chapter 16 of Matthew as well. Chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 24. Then he said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Well, what happened to Jesus when he took up his cross? He endured suffering. He endured shame. He endured mockery. He endured physical torment to obey the will of the Father. To take up our cross means that suffering comes with following Jesus Christ. 
Next, go to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Verse 26 and 27. Verse 25, actually, consider the context. Discipleship tested. Large crowds were going along with him. And he turned to them and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So let's look at this a little bit here. If we were to find this further and we consider Jesus' command to love one another, Jesus' command to love our neighbors, to love our enemies. So of course this is not a contradiction. Of course we don't call up our relatives and say, hey, guess what, I, I hate you now. Just wanted to let you know. No. Love, we're to be defined by our love. But loving Jesus more than anything in this world, more than anyone in this world. Uh, Riken says, Jesus is telling us not to let the claims that our family make on us interfere with the claims that he makes on us. Unless Jesus is our highest affection, we cannot be his disciple. The one's love in this world, or the love of the world, to be unable to depart from the ways of the world, unwilling to deny this world, to follow Christ. This means you cannot be his disciple. One who is in love with this world, will lose his soul. One who is in love with this world now and not following Christ, you are destroying your life and your soul even now. But the one who is willing to depart from this life and this world, who is willing to depart from this worldly ways by hating his life, in other words... Another way to say it, because we consider the word hate, and it's been so uh, abused and misused, and we should not use it in a way that is harmful. In other words, laying our life down, dying to it, in order to follow Christ, laying down your life, dying to your old life, and saying, I want the way that you have for me, Jesus in order to follow Christ, and you will keep it to life eternal. Calvin said, For if meditation on the heavenly life were the prevailing sentiment in our hearts, the world would have no influence in detaining us. Let me read that again. For if meditation on the heavenly life were the prevailing sentiment in our hearts, the world would have no influence in detaining us. How often does the world detain us with its ways and its wiles and its snares? And we know that Satan is ultimately behind it. And we see it in our own lives and we repent of it. 
Jesus never sugarcoated what it meant to follow him. And if anyone stands at a pulpit and sugarcoats it, what it means to follow Jesus Christ, stop listening to that person. He did not call you to be on the outskirts of Christianity. He calls us to be on the front lines. He did not hide the hard things in fine print. You know, if you read something and it looks good, wow, this is pretty good, pretty nice. And then there's the fine print. And you say, I can't even see that. And then you, you get your glasses on or the magnifying glass. Oh, I, I see what it really says here. No, that's not for me. Jesus does not hide these hard things. It is right out. He front loads what you must do, what you must forsake to follow him. And he says in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Serve, servant, is translated from the Greek word diakonos, which we get the word deacon. And when he says here, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Following Christ, it is a present active verb here, and it's an imperative. It is a command. It's not a suggestion. These are the words of the Lord here. And this verse must be understood in connection to the previous verse. And remember what was said as well in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, similar verbiage. Turning around once again and seeing his disciples. He summoned the crowd, verse 34 of chapter 8 of Mark, summoned the crowds with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? So we see this in all four Gospels. When we see such a front-loaded command by Christ and such a, uh, a, a statement, we ought to take extra notice. F.F. Bruce uh, gives us some application as well. To love one's life, here means to give it priority over the interest of God's kingdom. Similarly, to hate one's life is to give priority over it to the interest of God's kingdom. To follow Jesus, to pick up our cross, is to follow Him, is to suffer, it is to be shamed, it is to be ridiculed, and to be hated by this world. We are called to a narrow way and a narrow gate. As Jesus says in Matthew, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. So in what is called Christianity, we could say even in what is called evangelical Christianity, there is broad roads presented. 
But Jesus, in true Christianity, in true discipleship, in true salvation, to follow him, he says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who are entering through it. Many are on the broad road. And that's not the way of the world. That's within religion. Within what is considered in the world as Christianity. And he says in verse 14, For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And he says, when, when we follow Christ, we walk with Christ, when he says, where I am, there my servant will be also. Jesus, always with us. Jesus, never to forsake us. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Just as Jesus' path of suffering and death leads to his glorification. So it is for followers. At times we must suffer to follow Christ. But what is always involved in following Christ is self-denial. But the result of serving Christ, as the text says here, anyone who serves me, says the Lord, the Father will honor him. To be honored by God the Father. This is great consolation. Tremendous promise. Great comfort. If you follow Christ, God the Father will honor you in this age and in the age to come. As John's Gospel says, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So some applications for us. We consider the Greeks that went to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I remember one time I was in Savannah, Georgia, and when I go to old towns that have old churches, I like to try to get into those churches. Well, not break in, but he have to let me in to these. That sounded bad. Uh, try to uh, see if they'll let me in to, to the old churches and look at the stained glass or the, the pews, the pulpits, especially when I know a little bit of the history there. We know the history of George Whitfield in Savannah, Georgia. And I became acquainted with a Presbyterian brother there. Um, who served in a church there and had one of those big pulpits, you know, the ones you walk up the stairs and look out at the, the congregation, old, wooden, beautiful place. And you see, this is common in older pulpits, but as I walked up that pulpit, there was a plaque on the pulpit which could only be seen 
by the preacher. And you've probably heard this before, you've seen pulpits like this before, but what it said on there, Sir, we would see Jesus. And that, and He is what we must see continually. And that is whoever stands behind this pulpit and proclaims, proclaims Christ, wanting you to see Jesus. Applications. Do you wish to see more of Jesus? How? I want to see more of Jesus. I want to have, I want to draw nearer to Jesus and I want him to draw nearer to me. I want to see Jesus. Three ways, practical. Two of them we covered. One is a concern and one is detrimental for the health of a Christian. Three ways. Well, they're all detrimental, but three ways. Closer to Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, let his word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Right? Psalm 119, we read it this morning. We prayed over it this morning. Being in the word of God. Secondly, praying without ceasing. A life of continual prayer. So the word of God and prayer. And thirdly, and there's, there could be many more, we could say, wow, there's the means of grace, the Lord's Supper. But one that if we had a, a, a yearly verse, let's say, or if we had a verse that we would put up here, which I'm not a fan of, personally. Not saying there's anything wrong with it. But if there were a text, one text... Christians entering 2023, Christians in obedience to the Lord, one text, Christians knowing what you have faced in 2022, knowing how the world is out to snuff out Christianity, knowing all of this, knowing that, wow, things don't look like they're getting so much greater, they're getting worse. Knowing that God is going to clear out His church. God is going to deal with the household of God and He is doing it. Knowing He will have a pure bride. Knowing that, the text, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. That is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Take that text to heart, brothers and sisters. Oh, to see more of Jesus in our lives. Jesus Christ died for his church, should we not live for his church? The desire of disciples, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Departure that brings reconciliation. 
Have you been reconciled to Jesus Christ? Reconciled to God, excuse me, through Jesus Christ. By repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord. And then the death that brings life. The title of the message, to die or to live you must die. Something along those lines, I forgot it already. But dying to sin. Dying to self. Determining the defined cost. The cost that is defined by Jesus himself in the word of God. And follow after him. We're going to pray and we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. So join me in a word of prayer, please. Father, thank you that the salvation you offer freely as many that will call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Thank you. There's nothing that we can bring simply to the cross we cling. We can do nothing to to be good enough to save ourselves, to merit anything. God, that you would give us a All of us, Lord, hearts more desirous to draw near to you. That we would recognize the death that brings life. That we would always preach the gospel to ourselves. That we would not rest in who we were, but we would rest in who we are now because we rest in you. And for those in here, Lord, who do not know you, let them count the cost, to consider the cost of following Christ. But how much more the cost of denying Jesus and spending eternity in the lake of fire, eternity in wrath, eternity in judgment. Oh Lord, we pray by your you grace and your mercy that you would save anyone in here this morning who does not know you. In Jesus' name, amen.